0: We're continuing a series through First Samuel. I get kind of a slow trickle of feedback that for a lot of people this has been very formative for them. Uh, partly in, because it's been the first time they've ever walked through an Old Testament book like this. And, and myself included, I've only ever really dipped seriously into the main chapters of First and Second Samuel. And going through it has been really, really amazing. And one of the things that you begin to see um, as you slowly get acclimatized to the the writing style and and the way that God has formed this account, is you're reminded that great storytellers, across any genre, but what the great storytellers do is they they plant little seeds. They show little choices that are made by significant characters in the story. And early on, you're kind of like, okay, this is happening. And, And it just seems like very neutral stuff. And then, as the story unfolds, you begin to realize, oh, they were showing me something about the trajectory that this character was on. You see that in movies too. Where these choices that seem innocuous at the start, but they layer. And so much so that an hour in or 20 chapters in, you're seeing very different trajectories emerge. But it's strange because it wasn't like there was necessarily one big decision to veer right or veer left. It was just a slow movement on the back of a thousand subtle, small pivots. And that's kind of what we're seeing as you move through this section of the book of Samuel. David and Saul are being subtly contrasted. And over the next few chapters, really in the chapter 31 the contrast is going to become even more noticeable. These are two men that are moving in very, very different directions. And the direction in each of their lives is established by small little decision points along the way. Any one of which doesn't look monumental, but they build. One commentator said, what Saul is showing us is the natural and inevitable consequences of refusing God's call on one's life. And what David is showing us is what happens when one responds to God's call and begins the lifelong process of transformation. And I would actually add a word in there. Uh, that's, I'm quoting someone else, but if I was augmenting and changing that last line, I would say, David shows us what happens when we begin the lifelong transformation, sorry, the lifelong process of dangerous transformation. Because that's what real transformation is. And that's part of what I think is a subtext in 1 Samuel here. We are moving into a stage of David's life that is anything but safe. It is very dangerous. The stakes are very high. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of disorientation. Disorientation. It's a, it's a real refiner's fire where David has often nothing to rely on but his trust in God. And to enter into the Christian life is to enter into a similar posture where we recognize that God promises to bless us and that His peace will be with us, that He can fill us with love and joy. He will guide us. But if we understand all of those things to happen within a cocoon of safety, we're going to experience very quickly that like, oh, I feel kind of betrayed because my life hasn't become easier and necessarily progressively getting easier. Often, following God faithfully means detours and challenges and disappointments and hardships but that's often the furnace of actual transformation. If our vision for discipleship, of what it means to become a Christian, is essentially... uh, Well, if it's framed by concepts like safety, comfort, predictability, and manageability, then very quickly, I think we're going to experience a huge dissonance between what we're expecting... And what we're experiencing. Because the ways of the kingdom of God are often anathema to our flesh, meaning that those, that um, will within us to have life conformed to how we want it, to have my comfort put first, to have, I mean, yeah, of course I worship God, but I'm doing that because I want God to bless me. And by bless me, I mean make my life easier. I have good plans and agendas and intentions. So, I want God to forward those things. And then when God says, well, I might, but it might not actually look the way... It might not be painless, first of all, to advance that agenda. And um, there might be things in your agenda that are actually not good for you long-term or even short-term. And so these texts are difficult at the level of the person. And for us as a church, because it really does show us that we can be following God faithfully, doing all the right things like David is doing, and still encountering all kinds of disruption. But that can also be a grace note of comfort in our lives. Because people have always been tempted to say, well, if I was living rightly, and if God loved me and cared about me, then everything would be awesome. And we just see from so many biblical characters, but David is a good study in that. It's like, no. Saul is the one who gets the rest and comfort and safety and predictability and manageability, but we see his spiritual life spiraling out of control. His psychological state deteriorating. On the inside, his world is falling apart even as he's surrounded by uh, privilege and comfort and power. So let's look into God's Word and be prepared for Him to prompt us to move deeper into the adventure of following Jesus even if that really does feel dangerous God for our community I pray for faith for myself I pray for faith I pray for courage I pray for constancy for endurance and God through your word this morning I pray for refreshment for every ear that is listening amen okay scene one there's kind of two scenes in chapter 23 the first is David saves Keilah so when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floor, David inquired of the Lord and said, should I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said, Lord said, yeah, go and attack them. Save Keilah. Now, Keilah is about three miles south of the cave of Adulam. and the Philistines have come up to raid the threshing floor after the harvest season, so it's like, it's the easiest kind of farming. You let other people do the work, they gather the crops, and then you just swoop in and kind of like Viking the crops for your own. And you can see, if you remember, kind of those coastal plains, middle middle neutral ground of the Shephelah, and then the uh, mountainous plains of um, the Judean wilderness and countryside, you know, the Philistines are starting to move through the Shephelah and encroaching on Israelite territory. And, and and Kila is a is a kind of a border state between the Shephelah and Judah, so this is a this is a big deal. And obviously, in that day and age, you can't just go to Safeway and get more crops and more supplies. So this is a, a life and death situation. And God says, "Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna save the city, or the village." But David's men says, "Hey, here in Judah, we're afraid. Like they're like we're already on the run from Saul." How much more if we go to Kayla and get the Philistine forces you know, tailing us too? So David's men are like, listen, we've got enough, our hands full. It's terrible what's happening over there, but we should not do this. And David listens. like He hears that advice, but he actually seeks God's guidance in verse 4 and 3. He doesn't allow um, those around him to be the only input. And he understands that a king... And a leader doesn't just listen to people. You know, sometimes, you know, the kingdom of God is often not a democracy. You hear, and then you have to seek God, and God makes something clear, even if it seems ill advised or challenging for us to move forward into that. So, in verse 4 and 6, he's told to engage the Philistines, and he does so, and he saves the village. Now, one thing to note here, and this comes up again and again and again, part of that difference between Saul and David is notice that David is doing what Saul is supposed to be doing. Saul is the king. He's supposed to be fighting against uh, the Philistines. David is doing Saul's work. He's protecting the Israelites. He's helping the Israelites. And to me that's important because what it shows is something about David's character and his understanding of his identity, which is, I'm not going to wait until I'm in a leadership position before I actually start acting like a leader. So David doesn't say, well, it's not my job. Like, that's Saul's job. Let let Keilah burn to the ground. Like They're just going to blame Saul. Maybe that'll put pressure on Saul. He's like, I can't do that. He says, God, do you want me to deliver? And God says, yes. David's on the run. He has no advantages other than these like 400 mighty men with him. But he delivers the city because he's not waiting for a title or someone else's permission to actually start leading and doing the right thing. And that reminds me, when Paul is coaching Timothy later in the New Testament, he says this, he says, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Like, don't let someone look down on you because you're like 19 and you don't have the best seminary education and you're new at this and we're planting a church in Ephesus, but no one's really planted a church before, so we're not really sure how it works. Like, And other people said, well, is Timothy like Jewish enough to actually be a leader in the church? Like... Whatever was coming Timothy's way, Paul says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in faith, and in purity. And I love that. I used to um, use that all the time with students when I was doing youth ministry, was to say, you don't have to wait until you're in a leadership position to start to lead. You can learn from people like David. Hear what Paul is saying. You can be an example. Right? Uh, you don't have to wait until that all the stars align. You start doing the right thing right now. You be the example. So David does that. God saves the city through him. And then in verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands for David has imprisoned himself by take, entering a town with gates and bars. So Saul calls up his forces, goes down to Keilah and he, and he goes down to besiege David. He's like, oh, I've got this guy cornered. Here we go. Now, if you're moving through the narrative quickly, um, you might miss just how cowardly an act this is. Like, it's just such a scummy... It's just such poor leadership on Saul's case. When the Philistines are attacking Keilah, Saul's like, whatever. He doesn't care. But when he finds out that David's there, then he's moved to action. Then he's like, oh, now I'm going to do it. So he's driven by his own vendettas. He's not driven at all by doing what is right. It doesn't even occur to him to come to Keilah's defense. It's all just about fulfilling his agenda. And for him, finding and likely killing this upstart poet, warrior, future king. In verses 9-13, to David seeks God's guidance through uh, Abiathar the priest, and he learns that the inhabitants of Keilah, even though he saved the village, are actually going to betray him into the hands of Saul. So he escapes. And in verse 14, we read, David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. So again, cat and mouse going through the hillside, the mountainous region, moving at night, and and, and just kind of trying to keep one step ahead of Saul. The next scene is David at Horesh. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horash and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and then Jonathan went home, and David remained at Horash. This is the last meeting between David and Jonathan, it's a final scene. And there's celebrated friendship. And Jonathan, again, takes a huge risk to seek out David and to strengthen him. And, you know, I'm just reminded of times in my life where it has been very difficult. And, you know, you have friends who are like, hey, if you're in trouble, give me a ring. Right? But then you have friends who they know you're in trouble and they show up at your doorstep. That's a different level of loyalty and care. And that's what we're seeing from Jonathan here. And we should all learn from that, right? It's good to say, hey, if you ever need anything, whatever, like, you know, where, you know where to reach me. It's quite another to anticipate need and to say, hey, I wanted to just pop by, see how you're doing, drop off these gift cards, whatever it is amazing amazing friendship and the friendship again it's emphasized is not just because David and Jonathan are best buds and they have like a natural personality simpatico it's very complimentary and they have similar interests they both like fly fishing and they like watching the Jays game on Sunday afternoon it's grounded in God they make a covenant like we're in this for each other forever we're gonna be praying every day for each other there's more than friendship here it's a friendship that's more concerned about serving God together than simply just having a great friendship together. And sometimes we want friendship with people so desperately that we put all of our energy into trying to make the relationship strong and cultivating the friendship instead of moving forward and serving God together. And that's why the strongest relationships um, have God at the center, are both are pursuing God. Because some relationships can suffocate under the weight of one BFF needing the other BFF to be all things. And so one of the ways that we give our relationship space to breathe and relieve them from the crushing burden of you have to be kind of like a mini-God for me is to actually ground ourselves in receiving encouragement and grace and strength from God. That actually allows our Good friendships to thrive even in a more healthy way. Now, the final verse of this chapter is quite significant. It says, "David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi." And this is a huge, huge grace note in this chapter. But because we're un- most of us would be unfamiliar with what En Gedi refers to, right? These are Jewish, uh, God is using Jewish writers to communicate givens to people who knew the typography and the geography and the land. And so there's not the same detail offered. It's just kind of like En Gedi and you could just read it and go on from there. But it's actually really important that you understand and actually see what En Gedi is because that really helps to frame what God is doing in this story. So watch
1: this video. too far of a drive north from our pleasant stay at the Dead Sea is Ein Gedi. To get there, you will drive through the desert on a highway that sometimes runs right along the Dead Sea. Depending on the time of year you visit, it will likely be hot or very hot. Buy some water. In a few spots around here, there are incredible natural freshwater springs that rise from the Dead Sea Basin. One of these is Ein Gedi, made famous by David in the Bible as one of his favorite hiding spots. The important biblical location of Ein Gedi was declared to be a protected nature reserve in 1971. To the west of the preserve is the Judean Desert, and the eastern border is the Dead Sea. In the desert, flowing water means life. There are two large spring-fed streams that flow here year-round. The area teems with life and it is a very enjoyable place to visit. It was here in these caves above me that David and his mighty men hid from King Saul, who was out to destroy the upstart warrior poet. David and his men had a pretty nice spot here with food, water, and a vantage point that could see enemies coming for miles. While the Jordan River to the north provides most of the water flowing into the Dead Sea, there are no outlets, and there are no outlets for the simple reason that the Dead Sea area is the lowest dry land on planet Earth. It's 1,300 feet below sea level. Now, given that water does not flow uphill, The fact that there was no outlet was one of those duh moments for me. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. I keep hearing that there are no outlets to the Dead Sea, and that's why it's so salty. Then one day, the light bulb went on. Well, of course there are no outlets. It's pretty much the bottom of the planet. Okay, I get it. There are many species of resident birds here at Ein Gedi, and these are supplemented by over 200 additional bird species that rest here during migration periods in the spring and fall. A gnarly-looking species of wild goat called an ibex is prominent here, and you will see them scampering along the cliff sides. Yeah, that's right. I said scampering. Because of the water, the area is also known for its plants and wildlife. It's mentioned in the Song of Songs, 114. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Henna blossoms are flowers that are grown in this part of the world, and they're very fragrant, so fragrant, in fact, that they're used for perfume. And brides are often decorated with them on their wedding day.
0: So maybe as that picture sort of comes into focus in our mind's eye, we can kind of see what God is doing here. That even though Saul is pursuing David, and David is on the run, and David is experiencing tremendous destabilization, and there is no plan beyond get through the next day, get through the next week, continue to go into the paths that God... God, opens up and trusts him, God leads David and his men to En Gedi. And this is like a wilderness retreat. And it becomes a picture for all of God's people in successive generations of a place where God encourages us after a prolonged period of time in the desert, in the wilderness. As the Israelites battled and, and um, fought into God's promises for the promised land, you know, you read again and again, they grow weary. It's, it's tiring. It's hard following God into freedom. And in the midst of their troubles, the Israelites longed for refreshment, they longed for strengthening from God. And the psalmists, you know, this might be familiar to you, Psalm 20, uh, 63 says that. Yeah, and the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, O oh God. And then Gedi became a picture and a symbol of the refreshment and the encouragement that God gives to His people when they feel dry, when they feel run down, when the going is Really, tremendously difficult. When their tank is empty, their batteries are drained. And the the moving water of Engedi was living water, right? The Israelites made a distinction between living water and dead water. Dead water is what you know—you have a, a bucket, you collect the bucket, or it stays stagnant in a puddle. That's dead water. It's not moving, and that's where parasites grow. But living water is a continual place of refreshment, and this becomes a picture that. Although he doesn't invoke the name and Getty, Jesus uses with the Samaritan woman at the well, where he says, You know, you're going to this well to get fresh water, but I have access to a water that will come up with you, come up from within you forever, and you will never thirst again. And so this is a picture of God's gracious, targeted refreshment to those who are experiencing hardship in the wilderness. And you know, I, I I was I wrestled with how to frame this next sentence. I don't know if I should say most or much or some. I guess it, it does vary from person to person. But from my own experience, I would say I think much of the Christian life is spent in the wilderness. Maybe not across every domain all at the same time, but there are wilderness times in our own sense for Uh, meaning and purpose, there's wilderness times in our larger context of relationships, marriage, family with our kids, uh, seasons of doubt, seasons of dryness where we can't even put our finger on it, but God feels very far away and we just feel kind of scorched and run down from the everyday responsibilities of life. And the wilderness really is a picture of life that is very less than ideal. And if your journey is sort of tracking with mine, I would say a lot of my life is less than ideal. Has been less than ideal. And may continue to be less than ideal. Because what I think ideal would be, would be safe, comfortable, predictable, progressively more interesting and better. And that means better in the sense of, um, that sense of just, uh, well being and cocoon safety. And yet, what we see in scripture is that while God provides places like Engedi to refresh us, we're never really supposed to stay in Engedi. Like the great Engedi, like heaven, that's our eternal resting place, or that's our home. But this side of heaven, those places of refreshment are there to have us move forward in mission after a time of rejuvenation. And if you've walked in the wilderness, you can identify with that psalmist who have, who's thirsted for God. And you realize the wilderness, as hard as it is, is a place where we're taught what really matters in life, what it really means to trust God. It's a place where God forms our character if we allow Him access and instead of hardening our hearts, actually allow them to be broken open for Him. But it's also a place where the road can be long and it can be dry and dusty and it can feel at many points like it's never going to end. Like we have nothing left and that can leave us feeling very alone, can make us feel very empty. And at times like these, I want us to remember, if we've never heard it or maybe we're hearing it again for the first time, I want you to remember that final verse of chapter 23 in 1 Samuel where God provides a way. He makes a way for David to find En And it's from that place that David establishes a stronghold. And he can find relief and refreshment. And God can encourage him. Now, unlikely any of us are just going to board a plane and fly over to literal En and enjoy a few days there. But again, it's a symbol for... Places of rest, mechanisms through which God refreshes us, and I thought it might be good for us just maybe have a few people share what are some of those nggetis that are available to us here. Like as a person who is going through the wilderness, looking for those places of encouragement and refreshment, what does what are the things that God uses? You've either found in your uh, in your own life or just something that you've heard in a message or Discuss with someone else, what are the things that God uses to bring strengthening and refreshment into your life? Just have a few people share. Camping. Camping awesome. So nature. Nature is a big thing. And often we, uh, that, that's not true. Well, I, I grew up being very much an inside apartment kid. So <laughs> I'm growing to appreciate just how important it is To be in nature. To learn from the rhythms of nature, right? Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. To actually consider what God is teaching me through that rhythm. And so yeah, putting ourselves in a place where we are unplugging from digital stimuli and retreating from our normal rhythms and... Yeah, I mean, definitely for some people, your little campsite you can make to be your own little En right? Where you're like, hey, for a weekend or a week, we're just going to occupy a different space and allow God to refresh us. So yeah, being in nature, huge thing. What else? Exercising in nature. Yeah, moving the body. Actually being fully present and um, trying to just inhabit the moment and to be... Learn, and this is an, its an art more than a science. But learning to be aware of God's presence, and uh, i you know—hiking, going for a run, uh, canoeing, you know, outdoor activities—they they really do hit different than being in a gym. I mean, I'm a gym rat; I can do that, but it's different when you're out in nature, even when the weather is is less than ideal. There's something really vivifying God's power and presence, just sort of. Um, it's just easier to connect with when we are open to the majesty of His creation. Maybe one more. What's another kind of engetty, a mechanism of refreshment? Um, I, I, I am so humbled when I witness what God has done at the harbor in Rindell. We, we, the churches in Nelson, bought that to be able to continue KCBC, but it's so much more. It's become a retreat center, And I've been touched this morning again. It's an Engedi for so many people, and will be for so many people. And 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 God has opened the doors for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, KCBC is great, Cap is great, but this place is so much bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. And Engedi kind of shows us why we need dedicated sacred spaces. I went through a time in my Christian life where I was kind of like, "Well, everything's sacred, and every day is for the Lord, and every moment is to be." Given over to God. Uh, And that's easy to say, and that that is a vision for the Christian life on one level, but we need these special and Getty spaces to retreat to, to be restored, so then we can re-engage our normal life differently. And one of the things to my shame that I just have not prioritized over the last number of years is retreats. There's just logistical hurdles that I have decided not to overcome and push the thing down the line. But when you don't retreat... Like there, there's a kind of refreshment that only comes when you actually retreat from normal life and say to God, "I'm pausing all of this, and I just want to spend time with You." Doesn't even have to be productive. I'm not saying we have to arrive at like some kind of <laughs> agreement or plan. Or like I'm just seeking You in a, as much of an undistracted way as possible. And and places like the harbor at Ryandell are those sacred spaces that we don't go to to retreat from life that's not the other we retreat from life to be refreshed so that we can go back in and lead towards life like we re- we re-engage life but differently and changed and we need that and you know and I thought about even, even just the small things that we do whether it's prayer walks in nature finding a way of engaging scripture whether listening to it or a Bible study or online teaching that is helping us to grow fellowship has been a big source for me i think of david and jonathan and having core friendships in my life that i can go to to strengthen me those people are kind of like in to me i have certain people in my life that i i know i'm always going to walk away refreshed and challenged and that's part of the lesson here is that we don't just go to engedi but i think what god wants to do over time is teach us how to be and for other people but we're, we're like roaming ones right people don't always have to come to us we can go to other people And we can show up and we can be and offer a light, a grace note refreshment into the lives of other people. Whether it's being at a retreat center, praying with others, being involved in kind of a Bible study, walking in nature, exercising, um, learning to be more mindful of God's presence in our lives, we as disciples of jesus you, you just have to we have to participate and i'm preaching to myself here i need to participate in activities that actually refresh and fill me up that give me access to god's living water otherwise we do risk burnout and despondency and depression and deep deep discouragement and ultimately, en is really a picture of Jesus because Jesus, in a sense, uses en to say, this is what I can offer people if you come to me. Jesus is the source of living waters in a deeply unsatisfying world. And en points to Jesus, the only one who can really provide streams in the desert. He's the only one who can forgive us, who can justify us, who can heal us, who can lead us, who can guide us into God's best. And who can provide a stronghold to save us from our enemies, even the great enemies of kind of sin and death? And so, if you're in a, wa- a wilderness period, if you're in a period of wandering, you know, whether you are not a believer, whether you are a believer, you're, you're both actually searching for and needing Jesus. We need to find ways to get alone with God or in a small group of trusted people and say, God, I'm scared, I'm on the run, I'm disoriented, but I'm trusting in you, I need your refreshment, I need your care. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that it shows as David sought God all along his journey, God provided the Sengeti. And I really believe that he will provide one for us and provide it for you if we turn to him.